Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh Jalandun. I am a worship team lead and intern here at City Reach LA. Um, that, wasn't, that wasn't for effect. That wasn't for... Wow. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, but not necessary. Um, man, that threw me off. It worked. Uh, I've been coming here for, me and my wife have been coming here for, gosh, over two years now. I think it'll be like three years, yeah, January, but a little over two years now. Man, that's crazy. Um, we've been coming here really ever since we've moved here from Chicago to Pasadena. Um, I attend Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, um, and so I'm a full-time student. Um, my wife couldn't be with us this morning. Hey, Mel. Um, she's at the happiest place on earth, uh, Florida. And uh, Disney World, sorry. Disney World. Disney World, sorry. Um, and I'm going to be joining her right after this. So I preach, I fly out, and I'm going to go meet up with her and uh, her family, really. Our, our, our family, um, her side. At the happiest place on earth. Is there any, like, any, like, real big Disney World fans in the house? Gabe? Gosh. Are, do we live in California? Okay, okay, so we, oh, who likes Disney World? Who likes Disney World? Raise your hand. All right, who likes Disneyland? Gosh, I thought there would be so much more. Usually, like... <laughs> Six Flags! Um, okay, well, I was going to crowdsource, but that's fine, since no one likes Disney World. Um, okay, that's cool. Uh, so I'll be visiting right after this. Fly out, go see them. I'm really excited, though, to uh, bring the word this morning. Um, it's, it's a privilege. Like, this is an honor. Um, and, you know, I promise you, I've, <laughs> I've uh, toiled. You know, I just want to let you know, all week, even into the wee hours of last night, just to struggle to bring you this message. So, I mean, I hope it's good. Um, but really excited to bring the word this morning. Um, I love preaching. It's something I'm really passionate about. Um, and we're going to be continuing our series, uh, concluding our series on sin. Um, we started out the series, The Problem of Sin, right? And so our series today concludes on Palm Sunday at the crucifixion. Um, so it really is a privilege and honor um, to be standing giving the word this morning. Um, why don't you pray with me before we start, and we'll just get right into it. So, Father, would your spirit would be with us this morning. I don't know what everyone here needs. I think I do. You know what we need, God, this morning. You know why each person is here. And so, Father, I, I just pray that Anything that I say that is unclear, that is not of you, that is not in accordance with your spirit, pray that your spirit would breathe life into the words that I have to say. May they be your words. We give you this word, the word Jesus Christ. And we ask that his name would be proclaimed this morning. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. So 
If you have your Bibles with you, why don't you go ahead and turn them to John 19, 23. John 19, 23 to 30. You can go all ahead and follow along with me. It's going to be on the screen. Or if you have your Bibles and you're good Protestants, you, or you can uh, follow along. Um, or we have Bibles here on the side tables if you want to follow along that way as well. So I'm going to read uh, from verse 23 of John 19. Follow along with me. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and his sandals and divided them into four shares, one for each soldier. His shirt was seamless, woven as one piece from the top to the bottom. They said to each other, let's not tear it. Let's cast lots to see who will get it. And this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. And that's what the soldiers did. Jesus' mother and, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene stood near the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And after this, Knowing that everything was already completed, in order to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was nearby, so the soldier soaked a sponge in it, placed it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When he had received the sour wine, Jesus said, it is completed. Bowing his head, he gave up his life. This is the word of the Lord. So as a 19-year-old, Asina O'Neill exploded into stardom as an Instagram celebrity. From her modeling career on Instagram, Asina attracted over half a million followers by the age of 18. In, but in October of 2015, she deleted more than 2,000 pictures and dramatically edited the captions to the remaining 96 posts in a bid to reveal the manipulation, modernity, and even insecurity behind them. And upon quitting social media altogether, O'Neill urged her followers to follow suit, emphatically stating, social media is not real life. And some might consider Asina's actions to be extreme, radical, reactionary. But I think there's like an element of truth to Asina's story. There's uh, the capability of social media to distort how we see ourselves and how we want others to see and perceive us. And that's kind of its power, right? And so in Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, anyone has the ability to alter themselves in any way they desire. You can delete, you can edit. And on the surface, those feeds and pages uh, are ways for uh, you and I to put out this image of ourselves to resemble who we are, but it's somewhat deceiving because it's really a projection of me, right? So when you look at my uh, Facebook or my Instagram, uh, that is the version of Josh Jalandun who is uh, clean cut, and, uh, and likable, and, and marketable. And, and it, it really only resembles a slice of my person, a semblance of who I really am, and uh, 
not really the entire picture. And so we're going to be wrapping up our series on sin. And uh, for the past three weeks, we've, Josh has talked about uh, the problem of sin, right? And we talked about also the problem of human suffering. Last week, we talked about temptation. And in this series, sin has been defined as the breakdown of wholeness. And so if you can imagine sin as kind of like this impersonal entity or a cosmic force. You guys remember, uh, who's that the movie uh, so far ago? It's, uh, the never-ending story, like the nothing, it's like that. It's like kind of like this impersonal cosmic force that holds us captive to its will. And I, I don't want to negate, having said that, I, I don't want to negate um, that sin isn't something that we're morally responsible for. Okay, I, I'm not belittling that in, by any means. But I'm saying that for the sake of this message, we're just focusing on sin as a force, as a cosmic power, um, for this message, at least. And you're going to be asking, like, what kind of power does sin have over me? Well, if you remember when we started our series, Josh preached from Genesis, and we started in the garden. And when sin first enters the world, when Adam and Eve first disobey, what's the first thing that happens after they disobey? You remember? They hide, right? They, they sew fig leaves together, and, and they hide, really, from each other and from God. And that's really interesting, right? Because they once experienced a, a really beautiful relationship with God. And, and that is marked by their nakedness. And, and that detail isn't incidental, and that might seem strange and even weird and foreign to us, but... Uh, the, na- the fact that Adam and Eve are naked before sin enters in the world is really important. Because it means that the first woman and man, even Adam, are able to be totally, completely vulnerable with each other. Completely naked. And that's why sex is such a beautiful thing, because you're able to come to each other with, 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 no, um, with no strings attached with no conditions, and just can be completely vulnerable, completely naked, and be accepted. That's why it's such a beautiful thing, and you feel no shame. And they enjoy this exact same relationship with their creator. They don't hide from God, but when sin enters into the world, there's a deep fracturing in their relationship that occurs, right? So that where they were once able to be accepted in each other's presence, with no shame, now they experience such profound alienation from each other, from God. Where they're once able to be accepted and loved exactly for who they are, now they hide. And I'm not here uh, to condemn social media as a 21st century evil. I, I really am not. I don't think that at all. I think that our use of it exposes the human condition. So going back to the story of Asina, uh, to a certain extent, Asina's right. Social media isn't real when it becomes another mask that we hide behind. And, and, and it's just this another way that exposes the human condition of sin. The hiding, the protecting, the shielding off of ourselves. 
Social media has become just another one of the ways that we mask our insecurities, our truest selves for fear of being exposed for who we are. And so when you pull back the curtain, what are we trying to cover up? Shame. We're just like uh, our forebears. We're trying to save face. And that's, that's not just true of social media. It's true of all the ways in which we present ourselves. It's true of the clothes that I wear right now. It's, it's true of how I present uh, my gifts, uh, my accomplishments, uh, my possessions. These are all ways in which all of us try to hide our nakedness, trying to hide our shame. And so we use those things to cover up, to freshen up, to look fresh, and to hide from each other. And that's so subtle, but it's in the ether. That's the air that we breathe. That's the water we swim in every single day, and that's the kind of power that sin has over us. That's the kind of power that sin has over us. It, it uh, preys on our deepest insecurities and the deepest fears of being found out. We can't be naked with other people because we have shame. So we hide from each other. And uh, it gets worse. And the sickness is worse than we feared. Uh, there's this rock band I really like they're called Cage the Elephant. And they sing this song, Cold, Cold, Cold. And here's the lyrics that describe the human condition. Uh, Doctor, look into my eyes. I've been breathing air, but there's no sign of life. Doctor, the problem's in my chest. My heart feels cold as ice, but it's anybody's guess. Doctor, can you help me because I don't feel right? Better make it fast before I change my mind. Doctor, can you help me? Because I, I, I just wanted to sing it because it's such a good song. Better make it fast before I change my mind. Well, it's cold, 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 cold inside. Darker in the day than the dead of night. Cold, 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 cold inside. Doctor, can you help me? Because something don't feel right. Something don't feel right. Th those are non-Christians talking. Okay, that's not, those are, they're not Christian band um, and I think they capture the human condition so poignantly. There's this deep existential dread that we get when we realize who we really are, that something's not all right with the world, something's not all right when we look in here. And it's because, I think, I think it's because we, we've lost this vital connection to God and, and, and to each other, and our souls shrivel up. So at the core of our being, there's this kind of existential dread that gnaws at us. And, and we get good at, at distracting ourselves um, with a lot of different things. Um, but when we're quiet enough, we realize that there's something profoundly wrong with the world. Or maybe there's just something profoundly wrong with us because we feel restless and empty and thirsty. And there's this unforgettable interview, um, 60 Minutes interview with correspondent um, Steve Croft and the New, Engl uh, New England Patriots quarterback, Tom Brady. And uh, there's this unbelievable interview, uh, I think back in 2005. And uh, this is a conversation. This is Brady. There are times where I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have su three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, man, that is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, 
my life? Me, I, I think it's got, and I, and I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? And that's Tom Brady. Croft says, what's the answer, Brady? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And that was 2005. So maybe the answer, you hear, hear that, and you're like, the answer is just like, more rings, Tom. Give us more rings. That's what you need. And there's no question that ever since then, Tom Brady has established himself as one of the great, if not the greatest quarterback of all time. But what's the answer? Is there more? Why, why are our spirits restless to the point where, where we have to distract ourselves constantly, like on social media, we have to, we have to binge watch and accumulate experience after experience, like, what is that? When the best of us have everything, why does it still feel so empty? And so in our text this morning, which narrates details of Jesus' crucifixion and death, by the time we get to our passage, John the author has been building this theme of self-giving and the self-emptying of Christ. There's this language of giving and receiving, found in John's gospel when we look at Christ's actions. So John starts off his book and he says, we've received grace upon grace upon grace, and all throughout this gospel we see Jesus constantly giving. Constantly giving, and people respond by either taking by force or receiving. And so we, when we get to our passage, we find something so striking. In the building theme of Christ's self-emptying, Christ continues to lose everything. And in the span of this crucifixion, we get this sense that the Son of God is continually becoming uh, weaker, smaller, poorer, more malnourished. In our passage, um, two themes surface that correspond to the human condition we just talked about. Uh, shame and thirst. And this language continues to come up to Christ's crucifixion. It's all over the chapter. But just um, in our chapter alone, we start figuring out that Christ is starting to get stripped of every earthly possession. And so verse 23, the soldiers take Jesus' clothes and sandals and gamble for it for sport. And Jesus' clothes must have been valuable, right? Because the soldiers don't even want to rip it up. And it's ironic that the soldiers find value in Christ's clothes more than this person. Um, but that's not the most disturbing thing. The disturbing thing is the lewd imagery that's implied in the text. And so when you see uh, most modern film depictions or even art throughout the ages that kind of try to depict the crucifixion, they never want to uh, commit some kind of sacrilege against the cross, which is a religious symbol. So they always hide the nakedness of Christ. But the crucifixion was so degrading and so obscene, the victims were probably crucified naked, exposed for the effect of mockery. One scholar notes, crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity, the last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. 
And so most of the times the victims were uh, placed or executed in a public area, probably at a major crossroads where traffic went back and forth, and they would be stripped of their clothes, fully naked, left for uh, wild animals to eat, and they were subjected to what one scholar says, optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. So the crucifixion is, is an utterly disgraceful, utterly shameful act. When, when Christ is stripped of his clothes, he's in essence stripped of his humanity. He's degraded to the point where he becomes an animal. And, th- and that's really hard for us to fathom that, that that level of shame is at the cross because we wear crosses on our necks, right? We adorn our churches with these things. And clothes aren't the only thing that Christ loses, but he also starts to lo- he also loses his loved ones. In verse 27, Christ gives away and loses his earthly mother to the care of the disciple who he loves. Uh, some assume that is John. And his mother is no longer his mother. But then the passage climaxes when Jesus becomes emptied to the point where the most basic human need is denied him. Water. And so the degree to which uh, Christ experiences physical thirst uh, is indescribable and is probably lost on us moderns also because I think so few of us have actually experienced extreme thirst. But imagine um, by now, with the amount of blood that Christ has lost, and he's endured a scourging, he's carried the weight of the cross to Golgotha, the degree to which his body is dehydrated uh, at this point is probably unfathomable. He's so exhausted to the point where uh, it's kind of an unimaginable physical thirst that overcomes him, to the point where, um, out of all the phrases in the gospel— This is the only expression of feeling in regards to uh, the pain of his crucifixion. The only expression, and it's in the words, I thirst. And at the utterance of those words, uh, Jesus gets the attention of the soldiers who are present. And so they give Christ sour wine. Uh, Most translations render uh, sour wine. I think the KJV uses vinegar. And this drink was a a vinegary or sour wine that uh, was a common drink in the the Roman army. It's called Pasca. And uh, New Testament scholars are split on whether this is an act of sympathy or cruelty on the the soldiers. But, But we can conclude one thing from the text, right? One thing from the text is true, is that as Jesus is dying... As he's in agony, suffering a slow death, sour wine is something that is insufficient to satisfy his thirst. He needs something that only water can satisfy, and he's provided with a cheap substitute. I'm going to go for an aside just for a minute because I feel like they need to address this, but, but one of like, the perennial questions um, is why is there suffering in the world? And why does God allow suffering in the world? And... Uh, I first want to say that I'm really empathetic to the question. I really am. Um, 
you know, I ask it so much myself. I wrestle with that. But I think in trying to answer um, questions of human suffering, I think most times people um, conclude with this picture of God that, that I think is unfair to the God um, who's portrayed in the scriptures, at least the God uh, represented in Christ the man. And when it comes to human suffering, um, people get this picture of God as the, the watchmaker, right, who sets the, the entire world in the motion but remains aloof. So when it comes to human suffering, God looks the other way. God becomes uh, this kind of distant and uninterested father who's never really around, who's never present, who doesn't really care when his children struggle and suffer. And uh, the text really kind of refutes that picture, doesn't it? It refutes the picture of like a cold, indifferent, apathetic God. And I'm not here to answer questions of human suffering. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know why God allows suffering. Um, but I think we can conclude from the text that the answer can't be that God doesn't care. That God looks on. Because Christ in his humanity becomes so acquainted with suffering on such a profound physical level. And he chooses to endure it to experience it, to participate in it. And, and this, is, this is all part of the plan. Notice that in the passage, you might notice that it keeps on saying, John keeps on saying, the scripture needs to be fulfilled. So everything that happens in the crucifixion is in accordance to scripture. And this is a, this is a scripture that John is drawing from, Psalm 69 Uh, This is a scripture that needs to be fulfilled specifically. Uh, You know full well, this is the psalmist talking, the insults I've received. You know my shame and disgrace. All my adversaries are right there in front of you. Insults have broken my heart. I'm sick about it. I hoped for sympathy, but there wasn't any. I hoped for comforters, but couldn't find any. They gave me poison for food and to quench my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. And this repetition, it it keeps on going on, um, of the fulfillment of the scriptures. And essentially what that means is that the divine counsel from eternity past and eternity future decided that God the Son would become a man, become enfleshed, would live amongst a broken humanity to die for them in this specific fashion. And it's really important that we get this, that even with all the language of taking, that John reminds us who's still in control in the passage. If you look at the passages previous, uh, you say that when Jesus talks about his death, he says, no one takes away my life. John 10, 17 to 18. No one takes away my life. I give it willingly. I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down. I give my life for the sheep. John 10, 11. And so Jesus gives up his life of his own volition. No one takes that from him. He gives up everything. He willingly drinks the cheap wine. He willingly gives up everything, including the clothes on his back. And so we find Christ being stripped of every earthly possession, including his dignity and his humanity. Why?
Because God has to respond to sin. Because God has to respond to sin. The condition of humanity is so, so dire, so desperate, so devoid of hope, that the God-man has to bear the full weight of sin in order to defeat it. Someone needs to bear the consequences of sin. Someone needs to bear the cost of the fracturing in our world. And so we participate in sin, and you hear that there are devastating consequences, that sin brings about this disruption, this disorder, uh, this, this death in our universe, in the cosmos. And so when we participate in sin, we participate really in self-destruction. And so you might be here and you're, th- and you're saying like, man, that is just like, you just legislating your own morality. Like that is, uh, you trying to put something on me and, and not really being tolerant of the way that I live. It's not intolerance. It either is or it isn't. So you can take it or leave it. Um, if there are really moral absolutes in the world, if there is a really good and really bad, really evil, if there are these absolutes, then, then there really is uh, ways in which um, these absolutes are hardwired into the fabric of our being. Right? Like, like it's hardwired into what it means to be human. In, in how uh, we're designed. And that means that there are certain actions that lead to our flourishing, that are life-giving to us. And then there are certain actions that lead to the breakdown of wholeness, that lead to self-destruction. And so sin comes at a cost. Sin is costly, right? It, it costs Christ's life. And Christ has to pay that cost. Christ needs to succumb to the curse in order to break the curse and its power over us. And so when, when this happens, when, when Christ does this, something beautiful happens. And some theologians call this uh, the glorious exchange. So you see that... Um, Notice that the self-emptying is purposeful. And it, it almost like identically matches our condition to bring about our redemption. Christ bears the shame of humanity. He bears the suffering and death on himself. And in return, anyone who places faith in Christ, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ and says, I trust you as my Savior and as my Lord, I confess you as that, they become freed from sin. Freed from sin, freed from shame. It's all purposeful. Christ becomes naked so that we would be clothed. Christ loses his mother so that you and I could be sons and daughters of the Father. Christ becomes thirsty. So that you and I would be nourished with living water. Christ dies so that we would find life. 
Paul puts it this way, Christ becomes poor so that we would become rich. And, and I, think, I think this is the gospel this morning. You know, there's so many ways in which, which shame rules over us, right? There's so many ways, um, there, there's multiple ways in which, and I think one of the most, uh, you know, prominent ways in which I see shame ruling over us is that um, sometimes I look at myself and I look at brothers and sisters in the church, and most of the times uh, we think that we need to hide from God. And so we think we need to be good enough for God. We need to be perfect enough for God, and, and this is one of the reasons, you know, why we uh, get so involved in church. This is one of the reasons we become, like, a dedicated Christian, and I'm not knocking that. I don't think that that's a bad thing. I just think sometimes it's motivated by this sense that we need to be good enough for God. And I think this passage ultimately refutes that, right? And it says that Christ died so that you wouldn't have to feel ashamed in his presence. Christ died so that you wouldn't have to feel ashamed with your brothers and sisters. When you come before God, you can be completely vulnerable. You can be totally naked. And you, and you don't have to act. You don't have to try to be good enough. Because you can't. But you don't have to try to um, keep up this, this self-righteous facade. And trying to be good enough to cover up your shame flies in the face of the cross. And we sing that song, right? Like, Jesus paid it all. And, and sometimes we sing it, and we don't really mean it. What we, we, really, what we really should be singing is, is Jesus paid it somewhat. Jesus paid it somewhat for the things that I can't cover. So he covered, he's got me covered for all the things that I can't do, Right? And, and that is so not the gospel. That Christ is incredibly for you. That he takes on shame to remove your shame. And so if, if that resonates with you this morning, uh, drop the act. God is not impressed by your righteousness. He wants you to do good works, but not for the purpose of you trying to cover up your shame, not for the purpose of you trying to impress him all the time and impress the people around you and impress other Christians and impress the church. That's not what this is about. This is not a performance-driven faith. That is not the gospel. Christ died, so you wouldn't have to perform anymore. Now you can be completely vulnerable with God, completely naked, and still be accepted. Or maybe you're here this morning and, uh, and you're going through something incredibly rough and indescribable and you're struggling with how can God be good when he allows this in my life? Brother, sister, I'm not here to answer those questions. But I think maybe the gospel is in this text for us this morning is, is maybe the gospel is that, that Christ knows, that God knows your pain because he suffered on the cross and he just knows 
And he sees. He understands. And that's what Hebrews says, right? That we, we have this God who, this high priest who, who sympathizes with us. Who sympathizes with our brokenness. Who's made us like us in every way and knows and understands. Or maybe you're here this morning and, and, and the light is coming on for you. Okay, and you're starting to see that um, I have this thirst that it can only be quenched. I mean, that can't really be quenched by, by anything that I have in this world. And, and you're in love with yourself, you're in love with, with all the good things in the world, and you're starting to see, why do I keep on coming up short? Why do I keep on coming up empty? And it says in the scriptures that our souls thirst for God, that we're created for relationship with God. This is how church uh, father Augustine puts it. Uh, God is the only thing that can be loved as an end in itself. Nothing else can be loved like God can be loved. Nothing else is meant to be worshipped like God because they're ultimately never meant to be loved and enjoyed as ends in themselves. And it's not because those things are bad. It's, none of those things are bad. Like money isn't bad. Uh, uh, love isn't bad. Um, power, autonomy is, is not a bad thing. Uh, dignity, approval, uh, your, your inner worth, that's not a bad thing. But they lead, when, when, when we, they become endings in themselves, they, they become empty. They leave us empty. They lead to things that will ultimately cause us to self-destruct so money can become greed and materialism. Love can turn into codependency. Power and autonomy can turn into selfishness, into exploitation of others. And at the end, we're still left empty, thirsty. And I'm here to tell you, brother, sister, this morning, that, that Christ has gone to such lengths so that you don't have to be thirsty anymore. Now hear me, I'm not saying that this is like the key to your happiness, that you'll never feel uncertain, that you'll never have doubts for the rest of your life. God knows that I do. That you'll never feel unfulfilled. But it does mean that your soul will find a peace, a joy, greater than you can ever imagine, greater than you can comprehend. You would know a love greater than you can imagine. When you give yourself to Jesus the greatest and highest good, your soul will find rest. You will not thirst. And that's the gospel for us this morning. Um, I want to invite, we're going to move into our time of response, and I want to invite Jackie and our prayer team to come up. And there are three ways in which we respond to God uh, during this time. Uh, sometimes we respond, and we just need to affirm the things that we already know, so we sing. And this is an outward response where we affirm God's promises through song. And then there's a second way that we respond when we hear God calling to us through his word. We respond inwardly to the message and, and, and we ask and we plead and we beg and we respond to God in prayer inwardly. And then there's also a third way in which we respond, not outward or inward, but there are times where, man, like, I can't pray. I can't sing. I can't come before God. And so I need a brother and sister to pray for me. However you want to respond this morning, um, there are no tricks here. There are, are not any, there's no ways in which uh, we're trying to get you to, um, 
manipulate you. So if you hear God's word this morning, if you hear his voice calling you, come to Christ who offers you living water. And you can do it or, or you cannot. You can choose to come to him. You can choose to reject him. It's fine. It's, it's all to you. Um, and if you want to respond in any of those ways, if you want to respond and join in chorus as we sing this next song, then you can. If you want to respond inwardly and just be with God, you can do that. Or if you need a brother and sister, come to pray for you. Josh and Annie are here, and they will offer up prayers on your behalf. So any ways in which uh, you want to respond, um, let's come before God together as a church.